Welcome to the Kill the Lion podcast. It's me, Cody Clark. I know I've been on like a 10-month hiatus. I've been making a bunch of movies. You know, I had to stop the podcast and focus on that. They were time-sensitive, man. You know, don't, don't yell at me. I had to do what I had to do, but I'm back. We have a great episode for you today. Joe Swanberg is here. You may know his movies. You should know his movies. He's made a ton of them. They're all really, really good. We're going to talk to him today. Really great guy. Also, if you, if you like the show, and the show is back, by the way. I'm going to be doing episodes again pretty regularly. $2 per month. KillTheLionFilms.com. You can support the show and support the studio. We make movies. That's what we primarily do. But we do the podcast as well because we know you love it, and we love it too. $2 per month. That's the support that we want from you that you should give to us. And now... Joe Swanberg. All right, Joe, good to have you here. Thank you very much. Nice to um, be a guest on your show. I appreciate it. So I've been watching a ton of your movies lately. Basically, over the past couple months, me and my girlfriend, Chloe, we make movies together and uh, we've been digesting your entire filmography, pretty much, you know, going to various streaming sites and finding like ones that are probably defunct and like doing free trials and like this, that, and the other to assemble some sort of like full thing of your filmography through that way. I know many, many have become quite difficult to find. It's interesting. It happens, but it seems like you're trying to remedy that. Now, if you go to joeswamberg.com, you can see a lot of these hard to find ones. I'll let you take over from there, but um, it seems like that's the way to go to see a lot of your stuff. Yes, I'm uh, hoping to make that be the case. I, um, yeah, as the rights revert back to me at this point, uh, you know, I self finance so many of my films that I just own the rights. Um, some of them had um, handshake distri- distribution agreements with like Factory 25 and um, various films floated around to different streaming platforms but yeah many many of them never quite received a real release i'm kind of gathering them now on my website uh, you know i've had joeswamberg.com since god i don't know not 19 2000 or 2001 or something and it's mostly been dormant or it had like one line of text on there so this year i finally decided um it would be a good idea just to start warehousing the old films as the rights come back to me and also um, just to use it to start to gather um, really great short films, films by other filmmakers. Um, and uh, yeah, hopefully to salvage a lot of the stuff that uh, maybe is DVDs and other physical media are becoming increasingly rare or um, just being traded amongst hardcore collectors and things like that. So basically people go to joeswanberg.com and for I guess five bucks or so a month, they can stream. Yeah, there's like five bucks a month or fifty dollars a year, and I have maybe nine of my features on there right now, something like that. Plus every music video and weird short and um, some other commissioned projects, and yeah, just um, a, a kind of catch-all place. Um, so yeah, I figure like even if somebody just wants to pop in for a month for five bucks, they can track down a lot of films they might otherwise be spending like two ninety nine per rental or something, or signing up for some you know obscure streaming service. So yeah, we'll see what happens. It, it's sort of like in its soft launch, first month of launch right now, and um, I have plans for it. I have um, a lot of short films that are going to go up in April on there as well as right now all of frank v ross's films which have also been occasionally hard to find or track down and hopefully each month uh there will be some different filmmakers whose work i'll highlight and um some of the stuff will just kind of enter the permanent collection and be available to stream for the whole year and other stuff i think you know i'll just put it up for a month and then pull it down well, I've watched I've watched pretty much everything that's on there. I think there's only a couple things I haven't watched yet, and I've enjoyed everything you've thrown up. And there's some really obscure stuff that I didn't even know you you made. Like it seems like um like there aren't even like IMDb pages for some of these shorts that you've you've done over the years. Um how much unearthed like stuff really is there that just has never seen the light of day 
at all? Um, I'm still going through things. It's interesting. Like I have, you know, most of my career is sitting on hard drives in boxes. M- many of these hard drives I have not even plugged in since, um, you know, 2006 or seven. Um, so I don't know. I, I think I've got most of the major stuff like, um, though I did a web series called young American bodies, four seasons of that web series, which is used to broadcast on ifc.com. That show's kind of fallen by the wayside or become difficult to see. So that'll end up going up there and maybe other things that I forget about, you know, funny, um, shorts that I just was goofing around with friends and making and other tests. A lot of times before I did features, I just did little test shorts and other ways to, um, put actors on camera and things like that. So I would say over the next few months, as I dig around these old hard drives, maybe some other super rare will be unearthed. But primarily, I think most of my stuff is up there, though. I think I get the rights to Hannah Takes the Stairs back from IFC later this year. And um, maybe I get nights and weekends back the following year. So I think some other features will start landing there as well. Well, congratulations on on any time you get the rights back. Um, both you and I, we share kind of the belief that filmmakers should try at least to to own their own stuff as much as possible and and build that that big catalog that will always kind of have worth and have uh you know something to it that's something that's super important to me i i own all of my films i've i feel like every couple films i'll i'll get tempted by some distribution deal and then i'll like read the fine print and realize like yeah i don't want to be a part of that whatsoever I just want to own my stuff, even if I don't make a dime in the immediate, you know? Yeah, I think um, it's becoming increasingly clear that the bundling of these rights is also valuable, you know? So as you own all your own stuff, it's conceivable that you can reach a point where you can do a really good distribution deal that makes sense and um, pays you well if you have libraries and collections of films. So I think filmmakers are always putting themselves in a good place by owning their own work, or at least being in control of the distribution. It's an old school model, you know? I I feel like um, in the 80s, maybe 70s and 80s, it was common knowledge, and a lot of really great filmmakers owned their own catalog and distributed their own work. But um, that was also the days of institutional licensing and I think you could, you know, rent a print for a screening for $250 and physical 16 millimeter prints were moving around and things like that. So I just think the internet has changed the landscape so much that um, it's hard for filmmakers to envision that old method. But I still think it's pretty exciting and interesting to just connect the distribution to every other aspect. It's like if you're going to do everything yourself anyway, from financing to making the film distribution feels like just another um, part of the puzzle. Yeah, absolutely. Especially with the, you know, more and more streaming services are opening themselves up to a model where, you know, the artist retains the full rights to their work. It's just on their, on that streaming platform as well, whether it be Amazon or, or or smaller streaming platforms, they're kind of meeting you halfway. I found which is just wonderful. I mean, that's that's kind of what it should be, and and I'm happy it's it's increasingly more like that. Yeah, I agree. I um in the early days, I was really surviving off of the filmmaking and um, the distribution deals with small DVD companies and with um, IFC for a stretch of several of my films were actually keeping me alive. You know, like I was um, making these films for you know, five thousand, ten thousand, twenty five thousand dollars and then selling them for a little bit more than they cost and paying the rent and putting any extra into the next film. So I was glad I did those deals. You know, I never regretted the distribution deals, but as the rights expire, you know, several of these deals were for stretches between seven and fifteen years. Um as I reach this point where the rights are expiring, it just makes sense to me to pull them back rather than re-up. And also, you know, a lot of new avenues are emerging. Like I'm sensing that physical media is coming back in a big way. And as the um, streaming content gets stratified amongst all these different companies that are launching their own streaming services and they stop being 
kind of grouped together in a Netflix or something like that, a lot of people are realizing they just want to own physical media of the films they love and don't want to have to deal with the films, you know, popping around every two years between different streaming services. So I'm optimistic that while that market probably won't grow to its late 90s size ever again, um, it will become a more sustainable avenue where filmmakers can do runs of, you know, a thousand or two thousand Blu-rays and actually make some money off that. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge physical media guy myself, too. I worked at video stores for, for many, many years. And when I see kind of how streaming services are run, where like, you know, they'll they'll even put out notices where they're like, you better watch Ghostbusters this week or it's going to disappear or something. And it's like, if a video store ever treated movies like that, they would be the worst video store in town and nobody would go there. Just the, the thought that like, oh, we're just going to get rid of all these movies that, uh, you know, we the rights expire to or whatever. Like the idea of like something just goes on a shelf, it stays there until it's rented you know that that's that makes more sense to I think people's brain when it comes to movies. You know, even though video stores have gone by the wayside, I think it's it's something that could come back. And I can kind of sound like an old fogey in a way when I talk like that, but I I do think that physical media, much like vinyl, um, you know, can have a a resurgence. I think I think video stores our libraries are vital to communities and uh you know probably the best video store near me is the public library where i can go in and rent you know 10 dvds um at a time for free basically i would love to see libraries become more like video stores or even you know build out in a way where they kind of look like a video store even and just kind of play up that aspect because i do think that engaging with uh movies in that physical way where you're holding something and you're placing something in a, into a player and you're looking at the box art and you're, you're treating it like an object that actually exists. I think that that brings something to the experience. I know I'm probably preaching to the choir a little bit here. You have a, uh, would, you, would you call it a video store? Would you call it a theater? Is it a bit of both? You have a place called Analog in Chicago? Yeah, it's a bit of both. It's certainly a functional video store. People come in and check out movies all the time. But we also do several screenings each month, and um, I've just built a little, you know, it's like a storefront micro cinema is the best way to describe it. I can comfortably seat 35 or 40 people. It's it's quite small. It's couch and chair style seating. It's not like movie theater seating. And um, I'm, yeah, primarily engaging in programming in the theater that is um, thematic each month. Like in January, our program was um, an Earth in Crisis series looking at disaster films. You know, we showed Dante's Peak, um, but we also showed some like late 70s environmental films kind of claiming that if we didn't act by the year 1999, Earth would be uninhabitable. You know, like um, just uh, all the... Um, kind of constant scare films mixed with um, Hollywood imaginations of, we showed Melancholia, Lars von Trier's Melancholia. Like, you know, it's not like a typical movie theater. We're not, um, we don't have weekly programming. We don't show first run movies. It's much more eclectic than that and much more in dialogue with the video store. But I had a real desire just to um, recreate a space like that. I, I have two kids. I have an 11 year old son and a six year old daughter and you know, neither of them had ever even been in a video store. Like they have just completely grown up in a streaming era. And so I think to some degree, I wanted to just create the experience, not only for them, but even for a lot of people in their 20s. And I also think, you know, there's like uh, a feeling that I have to want to encourage people to slow down and be more deliberate, you know, like, the schizophrenic feeling of surfing through streaming platforms where you watch 10 minutes of something and fast forward a bit and then skip around and you're texting on your phone while you're half watching the movie. And, you know, I, I fell victim to all of this myself. I used to really consider movie viewing like a holy experience. And I just found more and more that I mostly like half watched movies, you know, unless I went to the theater where, I forced myself into an environment where I had to pay attention. 
And so with the video store, it's um, a much more deliberate act to leave your house, come to my place, choose a movie or two, and you kind of live with those choices. And so I noticed that I'm watching a lot more movies since I opened the video store and it's VHS only, you know, there's sort of like a interesting barrier to entry just because I don't think many people own VCRs anymore. But something about popping the tape in, the physical act of it is um, making me make different choices. And also I'm sticking with movies, you know, there's something that's less fast forwardy and um, forgettable about it. Yeah, I have a I have a bunch of VCRs. I, I have a bunch of VHS tapes. I, I find that like, one of the things people don't realize about, you know, watching VHS is that it doesn't look like the crappy version you see on YouTube. So like when you convert it to digital and you upload it to YouTube and they have that crappy compression that they put on it, etc., it really doesn't look at all like when you watch it on, you know, a proper CRT TV and um you can come away from the experience watching something that looks pretty much as good as a DVD or a Blu-ray. It's just a different type of resolution. It, it has a different warmth and quality to it. I think people get scared about delving into VHS stuff because they think, oh, it's going to look really muddy and it's going to look really crappy. And yes, there are VHS tapes like that, but like I'll, I'll watch like I'll find like brand new unopened VHS tapes at like Goodwill or whatever, and I'll bring them home and I'll pop them in and they look incredible because I'm watching them on a CRT television. I'm, I have it calibrated right. And it has this, this color and quality to it. You know, for, for one thing, I think the blacks look a lot better on a CRT television than on, you know, an LCD TV or whatever, there's just some quality to them on a CRT that I find super desirable. I remember watching uh, not too long ago, like a non-anamorphic DVD of uh, Darren Aronofsky's Pie on a CRT, and it it blew my mind. Like the 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 whites and the blacks and just the resolution of it. And this is completely you know non-anamorphic early DVD. It looked incredible. It looked better than I'd ever seen the movie before. So I think. If people understand that it's, you know, it's a different experience, but it's not a worse experience, I think more people might be prone to just picking up a, a cheap VCR off of Craigslist, maybe for free or whatever, and just getting some tapes, getting a cheap TV. I, I, I haven't paid for a single TV in, in my house. I have like three CRTs that were just, you know, free Craigslist pickups or whatever, and they're fantastic. So I think, I think different is the key here. A lot of um, a lot of work never migrated um, to other formats either. You know, at, at the video store, I'm I'm focusing on mo mostly on movies that are not available on DVD or Blu-ray. You know, a lot of stuff during the video store boom of the 80s and 90s was going straight to VHS. Um, a lot of a good indie stuff. You know, maybe had um, an extremely limited theatrical run, but but quite a nice. Um, VHS release because of um, the constant expansion of the number of video stores. And so a lot of those films, when it came time to pivot to DVD, were just not um, commercially viable. You know, whoever owned the rights to them could not justify going back to the original film elements and rescanning them at higher quality. And so, you know, the VHS release ends up being the end of the road. And it's also a lot of these issues were music licensing issues. So you have some pretty major filmmakers like um, John Sayles and um, I'm trying to think who else um, fell into this trap. Uh, maybe some of them, Cameron Crowe's early projects, things that had really um, great soundtracks, which um, in an era where they could not imagine DVD or Blu-ray or streaming, um, they wrote their contracts in such a way that the rights were um, given only for VHS. So they were, um, again, in a position where relicensing the music for DVD just didn't make financial sense. And so it's not even obscure indies and docs and things like that that didn't migrate to DVD. A lot of relatively mainstream films just couldn't justify relicensing re a Beach Boys song or a Rolling Stones song or something like that. And so you just kind of get the final home of these films being VHS. And I agree, the quality is totally fine. I mean, this is not um, 
like watching a fifth generation bootleg. You know, these were like major, well done releases at the time. Yeah, and also um, when you mentioned bootleg, it just uh, reminded me. There's a great Twitter account. I forget the name of it right now, but it's been archiving like weird clips from VHS bootlegs of like movies that came out around like you know 25 years ago or so. So like just digitizing, you know, like those ones where people would uh, bring a camcorder to uh, the movie theater and just record it that way. So you get these weird moments where like you hear a crowd actually laughing at a moment in some movie and it becomes this time capsule. And that's something I never would have considered about, you know, VHS bootlegs at the time, which of course were ubiquitous to me living in New York City as a kid. But um you just see people reacting and you see how people reacted to movies. And you never would have found that out otherwise if somebody hadn't brought a camcorder into some random theater and tried to make a buck. I know it's so funny to imagine. Yeah, I have a few of those myself where you can see people's heads in the foreground. <laughs> it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, it's like a it's like a um weird like anthropological version of like MST3K or something like it's Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So I want to I want to transition to talking about your own stuff. I first of all, I have a confession to make. I avoided Bumblecore for a really long time. I, uh, I, I like made it a point, like when I started making movies for some reason, I was like arbitrarily, like, I don't want to be doing what these other guys are doing without even knowing what you guys were doing. Like, honestly, like I, I bought into all the, the frankly bullshit about what this movement or this, uh, this group of filmmakers were doing. Like I, when I started out making movies, my first feature film was on a DSLR so I miss that whole kind of uh, late DV era that you guys were, you know, making movies with. Um, and I, I just kind of like had this arbitrary thing was like, you know, I hate the look of that. I, I feel like, you know, these, these, these filmmakers that are being praised, they're, they're just like there with their camcorders and they don't care about what they're doing. I bought into like all the fucking bullshit. There, there was so much like weird ideas of what, you and 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 Bujalski and and the Duplass brothers were doing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It didn't really reflect what the actual films were. And then, you know, over the years, I, very recently, I I went back and you know I watched Funny Haha for like the first time ever, and was like, that's a really fucking good movie. And then I I saw like Baghead, and then I I saw uh, Hannah Takes the Stairs, and I was like, fuck, these are actually really good. And I, I finally got what I'd been deprived of. And I, I, you know, that happens in film, you know, you, you come up with assumptions about certain directors or certain time periods, and then you realize there's like a plethora of stuff you would connect to. So I've been seeing this kind of Venn diagram crossover that I didn't realize was there between, you know, the stuff that I wanted to do cinematically and the stuff that that y'all were doing cinematically. And of course, everything, you know, kind of Venn diagram crossovers with the uh, work but it, it's just it feels like there was this this cloud of like the idea of what mumblecore was which it's a very strange thing yeah I, I um i remember it well i mean yeah for sure but you know I, I honestly have to say i probably would have had the same reaction you did and, and, and did to um a wave of early 2000s stuff that I felt I wanted to distance and separate myself from because it was trendy or something at the time, you know? So I think your instincts are totally um, valid. And um, there's a lot of stuff out there too. You have to pick and choose your battles. If you read a few articles about Mumblecore and it sounds annoying, you know, there's like um, 10 other types of movies you could go spend your time watching. So, you know, I'm glad that um, you cycled back around and um, connected with the stuff, but also I don't think, um, you know, none of us were really, we were sort of swept along with the Mumblecore label and the accusations, you know, the sort of um, feeling and vibe around these movies that they were lazy, unambitious, that the aesthetics were um, haphazard. And so, you know, and some of that was true. So it was interesting at the time. I mean, 
I'll say just from my end, because I can't really speak for the Duplasses or Wojowski or Aaron Katz or any of the other people that were like immediately lumped into this. But um, from my end, you know, when you don't have famous movie stars in your movie or any other means of promoting them, uh, the Mumblecore label was a double-edged sword. Like, I think it was extremely helpful in getting the word out about the movies, but also it was um, awkward to be the butt of so many jokes. You know, it, it was an easy entire group of movies to dismiss at the time, and many people did. So obviously, m most of the filmmakers who w were kind of part of that first wave of Mumblecore are now like really big commercial filmmakers. I mean, I think the Duplass brothers produce almost exclusively like HBO and other like big budget content. Greta is obviously one of the biggest directors in Hollywood right now. Lena Dunham and Barry Jenkins and all these people are like huge award winning filmmakers. It's interesting. I mean, it, it ended up being a movement that produced quite commercial filmmakers. But at the time, it was complicated to imagine that if you liked um, the puffy chair, you would also like Hannah Takes the Stairs. You know, I don't think that that is necessarily true. But um, it didn't make much sense either to spend any time railing against each other, you know, or sort of saying like, hold on a second, I'm not like these guys. You know, it's like we sort of had nothing else going on. I mean, it made sense to just kind of ride the mumblecore wave. But I think it spit most of us out a lot more on the commercial side of the industry. Yeah, I think I think too. Like you know, in the certain times when uh, my films have been written about or reviewed or whatever, I've looked at like reviews, and you know, it, it's an old saying that like you never realize how bullshit the news is until you're written about yourself and you see how bullshit it is about yourself, and then you extrapolate that to everything else you've read and realize, oh, it's all kind of like amorphously wrong in certain places. Um, when I would see how how my films might be misread, I think that kind of, you know, helped me to realize that certain films I might have dismissed without even watching them, I might be getting just some random other person's read uh, that has nothing to do with what my experience would be with uh, the film or whatever. And also, like, the, the lines, the arbitrary lines are a little amorphous and weird as far as, like, what mumblecore would be because i feel like like blair witch project if that had come out like 10 years later it would be called like mumblecore or something mm -hmm. you know because just because it's people arguing and it's handicam and and whatever you know like that would have gotten lumped into that too or whatever so yeah that's proof that like what you guys were doing kind of pre-existed what you were doing in certain ways because all cinema is kind of incestuous in that way and seeps into previous incarnations and whatnot. And, you know, clearly that wasn't being, that wasn't the way it was being presented to me at the time that steered me away from it. But also, you know, I'm kind of glad in a weird way that I was steered away from it because, uh, I, I just focused on my own thing. You know, it was just like, I, made my movies i figured out what my voice was you know it's it it led me in the direction where you know i have no regrets about you know dismissing mumblecore but i'm glad that i found your films i feel like your films in particular i've, I've really connected deeply with um you know it, it feels like uh almost like your filmography is itself an anthology much like your series easy is an anthology mm -hmm. and i is that something deliberate is that how you treat your filmography or have you treated it like that at certain time periods? I know you made like seven films in a year at one point. Yeah. 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 Do you, do you view yourself as like this person that has created this anthology? Does it all kind of seep together? Because as, as I was watching it, I had that same feeling as like, you know, when I was in high school watching all the Woody Allen movies or all the whoever movies, and I could see everything seeping into each other. I could see themes emerge and re-emerge and you know one movie means more because you saw this other movie that maybe came later or came before it etc is that a conscious thing on your part that on your part that you want to create a, a body of work that kind of can be explored like that yeah i think that it always um occurred to me that there would be especially because i was working so quickly that um 
each of these movies was kind of a chapter or something, you know, they were um, stacked right on top of each other. And there were years that I was making more than one film each year. And so um, I was um, not precious about them. You know, they, they each um, felt like their own project, but it it also was um, built into the structure that I was working with, um, you know, a lot of the same actors over and over from project to project. Obviously, if um, I'm working with the same people in quick succession, um, a lot of the ideas are going to bleed between the projects. And so, you know, I just um, felt like, um, I don't know, like stacking bricks in the wall of cinema, you know, just kind of like um, adding my little corner to what was going on. And I had my own preoccupations, subject matter I was interested in, styles that I wanted to try. But for the most part, they all just feel kind of like my movies, you know, like even when I am dabbling with genre conventions or with the last several features, like shooting on film with bigger actors and things like that, I just still am myself. So at the end of the day, I'm on set curious about the same types of things, investigating the same thematic subject stuff. And so I think over the like course of the whole time it it would be really easy to look at all my movies like um short stories in an anthology collection or something you know like each able to be viewed alone but also it would be interesting to watch five of them and see that there are are obvious connection points and crossovers and things well i can confirm that it it is very enjoyable because i i some of these nights me and chloe have been watching like three or four of your movies in a row and it, it you they just kind of blend in together and they just are so enhanced by each other my my favorite film of yours that i've that i've watched and i've i've watched all of them is drinking buddies and if i looked at the poster and i looked at the cover and i i didn't know that you made it or whatever i'd be like fuck this movie like look at these <laughs> like happy happy pretty people and like all this it's just like everything that would turn me off and then i threw it on and i was just like all right well i probably won't like this one and it's it's fucking perfect. It's it's a perfect movie. Like I just adore that movie head to toe. Everything about it. Everybody is the best I've ever seen them. The flow of it, everything. It just comes together in this way that really really worked for me. I love that it's had so much success because clearly, you know, I'm not the target demographic for the poster or the art of it, but it's reached a fuck ton of people. And also reached me too. So clearly it's doing something right. Yeah, I'm so happy to hear that. Well, I really like it too. I mean, I'm very proud of that movie. And yeah, to me, it was in that sweet spot where it's it, it ends up being more commercial because it has famous actors in it and um, maybe looks a little more conventional than the other stuff. But also it's totally one of my movies. You know, there's nothing... Um, there's no area during the production or in the filmmaking where I was like, well, really, I would want to do this, but I'm going to do this other thing because I think it's a more commercial choice or I think it's going to make the movie feel bigger or something. Like, I just made exactly the movie I wanted to make. And um, those performers are just so good. And um, Ben Richardson, who shot the film, is just so good. Like, everybody was just doing great work. And so, yeah, we ended up with this movie that. I think uh, does connect. And I think with the marketing and the idea of promoting it with um, certain a certain type of poster and a certain kind of trailer and artwork, for me was based on the premise that someone like you would find the film via cinephile channels anyway, you know, and that um, the harder audience to even try and reach was a more mainstream, um, non-cinephile, normal movie-going audience and that a conventional poster and a conventional campaign was going to give us a shot with them and that we already had a shot with um cinephiles who had stuck with me you know drinking buddies is my 14th feature so by that point it was like anybody who's still with me is going to see drinking buddies regardless of what the poster looks like you know but that hopefully we could um lure in a much wider group of people with a more conventional looking movie. And, and I hope that it functions on that level too. You know, certainly when it came out, like it was interesting because Twitter was becoming an interesting way to sort of like monitor a normie audience, you know, like I 
didn't really know prior to um, like lurking on Twitter how else I would just know what teenagers thought about my movies short of um, paying for a focus group or something. And um, I've never done anything like that. So when the movie was released, I was just kind of like lurking around on Twitter. And it was so interesting how many um, teenagers absolutely hated Drinking Buddies. Like, got um, drawn into the movie because of Anna Kendrick or Olivia Wilde or because they were new girl fans and they loved Jake Johnson. You know, like, they felt so tricked and betrayed by that movie. And um, so many of them were tweeting that it was the worst movie they had ever seen. And I just thought, um, first of all, this is so cool that so many of these teenagers saw one of my movies. And then I also thought this is probably one of the only like actual independent films they've ever seen, you know, like it did not have the trappings of like a low budget Chicago indie film, but in fact is a low budget Chicago indie film. And so I just got, I I derived so much pleasure. I mean, obviously I I wish they would have liked the film. I didn't um, enjoy that they hated it or that they felt like they had a bad time, but, um, on the other hand, I just thought that it was so cool that they were exposed, you know, that um, maybe someone who just kind of like only watched multiplex level wide studio releases thought that this was one of those and um, ended up accidentally consuming indie filmmaking. Yeah, that's always that's always one of my favorite experiences when I make a movie and I, I get to watch it be somebody's first weird movie of a particular type. Whereas like, I feel like I'm continuing a dialogue that like existed way, way before me as far as cinema goes. Yeah. And then I, I get to be somebody's entry point, you know, positively or negatively. It's just, it's a beautiful thing to see. And that's, that's definitely happened to me with some of my stuff where it's just, it was just too weird and too strange for somebody's first foray into whatever I was doing. I, I love that aspect. I, I, I do too. I mean, it, it makes me, it reminds me of being a high school student with my first few weird movies, you know, like these were life-changing experiences. I mean, I consumed a certain kind of mainstream content probably up until um, late junior high or early high school. And then, um, started venturing, you know, into like different sections of the video store or coming across um, foreign films on TV. And, you know, it's like um, eating weird food or something like that. You might end up really liking that food, but the first couple bites are always going to be a little jarring. And, but, but, but it's so important. I mean, you can't get to the other side without the first couple bites. And so, it is so neat to kind of feel like, uh, you know, even if someone is horrified by what they see, you're still like occupying some funny place in their brain where they're like, I hate that movie. That movie is so weird. And, um, yeah, then maybe like 10 years later, 20 years later, they're like, Oh yeah, that movie's not weird at all. I've seen like, um, a million movies like that now, but at the time it just felt so different. Yeah. It, it, I'm a huge uh, pro wrestling fan, so I always think about it in terms of like heels and faces and like the <laughs> the, the people you boo and the people you cheer and stuff. So I, I feel like, you know, in the immediate, you can boo a movie and then 10, 20 years later down the line, you're like, that guy was probably one of the best wrestlers of all time. Yeah. That movie meant a lot to me. And I didn't even realize it at the time. I kind of, I, I like sneaking into people's uh, psyches. That, that's a I totally agree. fun aspect. Yeah, yeah. That movie for me um, was gummo. Oh, yeah. You know, like I was already working, I was already working at a video store. I was already a total um, young cinephile. You know, the day I turned 16, I went and applied for a job at Hollywood Video and just was in love with movies and desperately wanted to work at a video store. I felt like that is what you do, you know? And uh, Gummo came through in like 97. Maybe I had already been working at the video store for a year, considering myself like a real indie film hound and cinephile at this point. And I was like, all right, cool. This like new indie film Gummo. And I rented it the day it came in and I hated it. I just thought, God, this movie sucks so bad this isn't even a movie like what the fuck am i even watching right now 
And I told all my friends, like, don't bother with this movie. It's terrible. Like, spare yourself. I hated it. I, I could, you know, I barely could even call it a movie. Like, I don't even know what it is, but it's bad. And um, I held that opinion for years afterwards. And then I was in college um, flipping through TV and um, the, the house I was living at the time had the independent film channel and um, some piece of gumma was on and it was like um, all the performers singing um, the Buddy Holly song. Um, and it, it just completely caught my attention and I watched for a little bit and then I was like, Oh my God, this is gummo. And, um, I just kept watching and I then just like probably picked it up in the middle and watched through the end of the film and was like, Whoa, I really liked everything I just saw. Like, I can't believe. And then I, you know, rewatched the movie and was like, man, I, I really like this movie. I can't believe I spent so many years trash talking it like calling it terrible thinking the movie sucked like i'm now like completely on the opposite side like not only do i think it's good i really like it and um yeah it's just so interesting like all that needed to happen was i needed to just mature and grow up a little bit you know and then suddenly the exact same movie just hit me uh, on such a different wavelength yeah harmony corinne for me i i came around to liking his stuff uh mostly through youtube clips because like I'd sit down and I'd watch something like Gummo or Julian Donkey Boy, I'd be like, "What the fuck is this?" And I'd just turn it off. And over the years, I would just like look at like random YouTube clips out of curiosity from like Gummo or Julian Donkey Boy, and I'd be like, "All right, well that scene was amazing." Yeah, you know. And then it it kind of just seeped in, and it took a while. And I I feel like Spring Breakers was the movie of his that I adored. And then it just flipped everything with me completely. I saw that one. It just clicked with me 110%. And then something like that happens and you just kind of like immediately, like something opens up in you uh, consciousness wise and you just accept everything else by the filmmaker. Like you just get it finally or something. It's like a Rosetta Stone or something that just translates yeah, yeah. everything else about uh the filmmaker. You mentioned seeing that on IFC channel. Something I talk about a lot is how good IFC channel was back in the day. That's where I saw Hard Eight. That's where I watched all those episodes of Dinner for Five and everything. Yeah, yeah. I used to love that show. Yeah. Oh, such a good show. And I learned so much. I learned, you know, that was my film school. That and working at a video store was was stuff like Dinner for Five and whatnot and, and IFC channel and all that. Yep. In recent years, it's so weird what's happened to that channel where they just play like Arrested Development reruns and they play like... Yeah, they show Ridley Scott movies and stuff. I mean, it's like, um, I feel like so often, like, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if I was um, watching IFC and they were showing Top Gun. <laughs> you know, it's like... Um, I think they have. I think they've played a lot of stuff like that. And it's it's just a completely different channel. It's very strange because that was... To me, that was like this channel that I was so grateful for as far as like finding great, weird independent stuff that I never would have uh, given the time of day otherwise. They had John Pearson's show Split Screen on there. I know. I, I discovered Kaveh Zahidi's filmmaking on IFC. They were showing in the bathtub of the world. It, it, it really was, um, yeah, programmed um, chock full of actual low-budget American independent filmmaking. And so was the Sundance channel back then, too. And, you know, I, um, I don't know what happened. I don't know if um, the films became mainstream enough that it was more lucrative to do Netflix and HBO licensing and that the independent film channel... Um, couldn't compete, so it needed to pivot, or whether um, audiences were um, increasingly not tuning in to low-budget filmmaking. But you know, I, I would flag that like um, the primary change in that whole situation had to do with the increasing mainstream visibility of independent films. Like the era, the era that you're talking about, where you would come across those movies on IFC was also not an era where the Sundance Film Festival would primarily consist of movies starring major Hollywood movie stars. Like, you know, independent film now is just less expensive Hollywood. I'm even 
guilty of making those films. You know, my last several movies have major Hollywood movie stars in them, even though we're making maybe like um, what you would consider still like in the lineage of American independent filmmaking or whatever. Like, you know, I'm, I, I still am doing movies that aren't um, close to like 1980s or, or 90s American indie filmmaking where you would have like um, entire casts of unrecognizable actors, um, movies shot on Bolexes or, you know, like um, the cheapest sync, 16 sync cameras. And, you know, all the cracks were showing like these films were just clearly homemade, handmade, but exceptional, interesting, cool movies. And so, you know, IFC was programming that kind of stuff, but I, I just think it becomes too tempting to show the bigger movies with the bigger stars. And so it's almost to the point now where um, the kinds of films that would have been on IFC are um, playing the festival circuit now and then going onto platforms like Mubi or, I don't know, some of the more like boutique um, streaming sites and um, that they couldn't even really like compete on cable television anymore. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the the kind of distinction and the kind of tiers to what constitutes the the independence of a particular film because I I kind of came up with a term to describe it for my own self which was truly independent. Uh-huh. Because I I felt like I had to underscore the fact that like the movies I was making I'm kind of just making them on my own. You know, they're they're more they're more build the wall than they are uh drinking buddies yeah 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 there are tears to what an independent film is it, it feels like at a certain point the term independent became indie and then the second it was indie it was more a look rather than a actual approach to creation like it was you know somebody with particular glasses or somebody in particular outfit or something and once it became that it could be co-opted by the ostensible enemy, the, you know, the mainstream or whatever. Yeah. It's worth, um, it's worth being realistic about that. I mean, it is, um, you, you need the designations because especially if you consume a lot of films, if someone tells you that, you know, that they're going to see an indie film, that is now a really meaningless descriptor and could encompass an incredibly wide range of projects, you know? And even a festival film, which used to signify a certain type of um, independence and low budget, maybe um, experimental or challenging type of work, like also, you know, sort of has been deprived of any specificity by the like huge commercial nature of indie. I watched it happen. I mean, I, I was not even um, necessarily part of the independent film world as that was going down, but as a high school student in the nineties, um, reading, you know, premiere and entertainment weekly and things like that. And just being like, or filmmaker magazine, which was kind of like, um, covering a lot of the, what you would call like truly independent filmmaking. I saw, you know, the sort of like Sundance film festival as a brand and a concept go from this like discovery zone of all these tiny little movies you never heard of to like a celebrity party each year. And increasingly the cast of those films was made up of television stars and other huge movie stars who thought it was like a good career move to make an indie film, you know? And it was wild. I mean, it, it, it was good for a lot of people. I think, um, a lot of filmmakers made more money than they would have otherwise by being around at that time and part of that scene. But we witnessed, you know, sort of like ultimately where it led. And, it, you know, it's kind of led to a place where what we used to call the independent film channel is now just called IFC. And it's like um, much more like MTV than it is like an outlet for, um, you know, like uh, discovery, film discovery or something. Yeah. The, the place I'm seeing a lot of, you know, truly independent stuff uh, these days is is basically just YouTube. You know, people will throw up their their movies completely free, and people will watch them and and discover them and and be refreshed by the fact that like, oh, this isn't a vlog. This is actually something substantial. Well, that's what I did with Build the Wall. Yeah, I just put it on the internet for free, and um, 
you know, I figured like, why, why would I even attempt to compete in the commercial landscape with this project? This project was a labor of love. I made it with my friends by myself. You know, it doesn't make sense to try and um, chase a distribution deal or license it to TV or something like it just feels right to just make the film available and make the spirit around it to try and have the maximum amount of people see it rather than make the maximum amount of money. Yeah, there's a there's a quote. You've probably heard this quote before. I don't know if you have, but uh, from Jean Cocteau, which is film will only ever be an art form when its materials are as inexpensive as pen and paper. Yeah. And um, that's something that was super motivational to me starting out and has been something that I keep thinking back to throughout my career. I love that you did something like build the wall, which is really just you and your friends and the wall being built in your friend's backyard and, and something created based off that. I would love to know um, how much was that just kind of like a coincidence of like, oh, hey, my friend, let me know that like this thing is being constructed in his backyard. Let's do a film about it. Was it was it planned out in a completely inorganic way? How does How does the actual physicality of coming together to make that little movie come to be like what's the uh, logistics of it yeah well it went like this jane adams who i have collaborated with a lot over the last 10 years i was in los angeles for the release of season three of easy we had um some screenings and some pressings going on and um one of those nights i was hanging out with jane and she said kent osborne um who also stars in build the wall is um, works in animation. Like he was the head writer on Adventure Time, and he also wrote for SpongeBob SquarePants and some big shows like that. He had le- left Los Angeles, moved to Vermont, and um, was living out there. And I don't have social media or anything, but um, Jane was saying to me, "I've been looking at Kent's Instagrams and kind of following his life in Vermont. I think we should make a movie out there. You know, I think there's." Um, something interesting to do there. And um, Jane and Kent and I had worked together um, previously on a movie called All the Light in the Sky, which Jane stars in and Kent sort of had a um, supporting role in. But they, So they knew each other. Also, I had made a film called Uncle Kent um, when Kent had turned 40, and I realized that Kent was going to be turning 50. So that conversation with Jane happened in May, and I immediately said, that's a great idea. I I do think we should all go to Vermont and make a film. Let me just check in with Kent and see if he um, feels up for that. And so I called Kent. He said um, he would love to. And um, uh, I called my friend Kevin Buersdorf, one of my oldest collaborators. He and I um, started working together on my very first film, Kissing on the Mouth. And then he was um, one of the leads and major collaborators on LOL. He did sound on Hannah Takes the Stairs. He's just um, been there since the very beginning. He also said he would love to come collaborate. So, you know, we put the pieces together first. I went out to Vermont and um, met up with um, Kevin Buersdorf and um, me, Kent, and Kevin spent two or three days together outlining, brainstorming, just kind of talking about um, what we could do. Kent showed me his life out there so that I could picture and imagine what locations we would have, what other friends might pop into the movie. And um, we landed on the idea that Jane would be, that Kent would be turning 50. Kev um, had sort of drunkenly made this birthday promise to him that he would build him a stone wall for his 50th birthday. And that in the interim, Kent had forgotten about that conversation with Kevin and invited his female friend out, hoping to have a kind of sexy, fun birthday weekend with her. And then, um, you know, all three of them end up there at the same time. And Kev is kind of um, cramping their style, you know, or sort of in the way a little bit of what was supposed to be a romantic weekend. So, you know, that's basically what we knew going in. Everybody flew into Vermont and we just started shooting. I mean, there was no script. There was no written down outline. Um, We shot the film in like five or six days um, in chronological order crew was me and my friend Amanda Brinton, who had worked on Easy and some other stuff with me. She came out and um, just sort of helped with sound and was a jack of all trades, like whenever we needed an extra set of hands. And it was so fun, you know? I mean, I think coming off of three seasons of making a Netflix series with a huge crew and 
um, plenty of money and famous actors and all of that. I, I really wanted to challenge myself and ask, like, do I still like making tiny little projects by myself? And um, the answer was yes. I mean, I, I still love it. I am really proud of Build the Wall. I think it's a really cool movie. And yeah, it totally like reignited my passion. You know, it was um, so fun to drop all the infrastructure and challenges of working on a bigger scale and just go back to doing everything myself. We moved so quickly, you know, like I didn't feel that the film was compromised in any kind of way. We just embraced reality, used all the real things we had access to and made the film for, you know, probably seven or $8,000, something like that. It's a wonderful movie. I really, really enjoy that one. I think it's, it's one of my favorites of your stuff. And it was really encouraging to me to be, to see you go back to that, you know, space of just a film with your friends, you know, no permission from anyone, just kind of just doing it and getting together and all that, because that's, that's what I do. And that's what uh, filmmaker friends of mine do. And that's what, that's what re we really love and we really find fun. And then, you know, I'll, I'll see a lot of filmmakers that could do that, but just don't do that. And, uh, you're a filmmaker that kind of has your your toes in two different waters, and I, I really appreciate that. You you get the value of just making a movie with your friends, and I don't think you'll ever forget that. I, I think you'll always do, you know, wherever your career takes you, you'll always do stuff like Build the Wall and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. I, well, so many filmmakers don't. I mean, that that I think was another reason why I really wanted to go do that. A lot of my friends say oh yeah, I'm making um, this bigger stuff right now, but you know, I really just want to do like tiny movies with my friends and they never do, you know, they just sort of um, exist then in a landscape where years pass where they're trying to get films made and they, they never um, just say fuck it and go off and do it. And I feel like um, I didn't know that I, you know, I didn't know whether I would be like that or whether I would actually just go do it. And um so I kind of had maybe a little bit to prove to myself as well, just to say, that's not just going to be all talk, you know, like I actually am going to go make the movie. To touch on what you said, I want to, you know, for any filmmakers listening at home that are big or small or whatever, something that I found super encouraging was a friend of mine, Joel Haver, who is a filmmaker. He made a movie called Pretend That You Love Me that's on YouTube. It's been watched half a million times. Wow. It's got no stars in it. It's got nobody in it but him and friends of his. It's a, you know, it's a dramatic movie. It's very small. I don't think there was any budget to it whatsoever. So for anybody at home who wants to make something and it's it's small, it's it's build the wall level, it can get out there and people can respond to it. It's not a movie that would ever have gotten picked up by Sundance or even South by Southwest or anything, but people are still out there clamoring for this kind of stuff, even if the demand isn't being met. So I would say, make your build the wall, make your pretend that you love me, make your, you know, kind of movies that I make. It will get out there. It will find an audience for sure. Because once, once that kind of dam bursts, I think people are going to realize that things like YouTube can be avenues for, uh, exploring smaller films and uh you know the kind of indie films that people miss i would say yeah i agree i mean i um there are very few um more exciting moments than um watching a film from a filmmaker you've never heard of with actors you've never seen before that really blows your mind you know i mean that's just um the best and so um i think there's always a hungry audience for that there's just um challenges in um, distribution and promotion and things like that. But yeah, the, um, the ability to upload an entire feature film and um, screen it for free is just an incredibly powerful tool for filmmakers in the old days. And by the old days, I even mean when I was starting out, you know, you just literally could not do that. You know, there, there was no such thing as YouTube in 2005 when I made my first feature. So I was burning DVDs, having to go to the post office and mail them to people, whoever wanted to check it out. It sort of cost me like $5 every time I wanted to share my movie with someone. 
you know, the idea that a global audience could watch a film instantly is just incredible. Yeah, one of my movies, uh, I made a movie called Attack of the Giant Blurry Finger that I made with my girlfriend, Chloe, where it's literally just my blurry finger in front of the lens chasing her around the house and whatnot. It's just as simple as that and that for like 60 minutes or whatever. It became really big in Indonesia uh -huh. and Brazilians really love it too. <laughs> and like, it, it, it's just, it, they just get a kick out of it. And that's something that, you know, I never could have anticipated and I never knew would happen. And it literally happened just by me putting it on Amazon Prime Video myself and then it getting pirated and bootlegged throughout, uh, you know, Brazil and... Uh, and Indonesia and whatnot. They just they just love it for some reason. That's so funny. There's always there's always an audience out there for sure. So we always finish out the same way. That's stupid questions. Can I ask you a couple stupid questions before we go? Absolutely. All right. First stupid question. This is uh, this is kind of a pitch actually. This is this is a it's a question, but it's also a pitch. You're you're familiar with Sharknado, right? Yes. There's also a there's also a movie called uh, Lavantula, which is lava and tarantula and whatnot. Okay. <laughs> Do you know about that one? No, I have not heard of that one. It exists. All right. So my pitch to you is Swanberg. It's an iceberg that's just full of, of, of swans. And as it melts, the swans kind of escape and attack people. I think that should be your next movie, Swanberg. I like it. Yeah. All right. Second stupid question. We we talked about Ken Osborne. I have I have a weird fan theory with Ken Osborne and your movies. Okay. When we first see Ken Osborne's penis in Hannah Takes the Stairs, it's at its I'm not I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say small, but it's at its least full. Uh huh. As your movies progress, it seems like his penis kind of fills up a little bit more along the way until Build the Wall, where he has like just a full erection. Wow, I love this. Was that something conscious? Did you notice <laughs> this? Was this a discussion? It really it's it's a solid trajectory throughout your your filmmaking career where it just gets slowly more full, bigger and bigger until full-blown erection. I'm nervous now because this theory implies there's nowhere left to go. We've already um taking it all the way. I hope build the wall is not the end of the uh Kent Osborne line. Um huh. I love this theory. I have not noticed it. It certainly was not intentional, though I will say that when we shot the scene in Hannah Takes the Stairs, where Kent and Greta are in the bathtub, he was very nervous that his penis was not being well represented, just that he felt like um, I was capturing it at its worst. He probably, um, I think on the Hannah Takes the Stairs DVD, me, Kent, and Greta did commentary. I'm sure he talks about it himself. But um, so maybe subconsciously since then, I have been um, trying to make it up to him or something by uh, giving the audience a chance to see his penis in many lights to form their own opinion about it. I think that's great. I think uh, I, I think representation matters, you know, in, in, in <laughs> cinema. And I, I'm glad you're you're showing us all the uh, you know the whole spectrum of of what he has in his pants and all of that. Also, uh, on my um, streaming service, I, I did a um, short for Funny or Die back in the day that Kent is in, which um, I, I believe it's blurred out. But um, in the video, Kent plays like a stunt penis for a CGI heavy sequence in which the mainstream Hollywood actors don't want to do real penetration so their scenes are like um computer generated and um kent is the stunt penis so there, there's clearly some fixation that i haven't um fully acknowledged or wrapped my head around well that, it's a very funny short it's funny because the thumbnail for it is is unblurred and then the actual short itself is like fully blurred <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's because the thumbnail, I dug up the thumbnail on some hard drive, which which was obviously taken by someone else at a different time. So, <laughs> Well, that and much more on joeswanberg.com. It's basically your own little streaming channel, which is awesome. I'll probably set up one for myself, too. It seems like the site you set it up with is is really awesome. Yeah, these guys, spe special.tv um, special is who they're called. And... Um, 
they're based out of Montana. And as far as I can tell, it's a real um, small organization, really cool guys. I've had a few phone calls with them and um, so far so good, you know, so I, I would definitely recommend them at this point. And uh, it's been um, very easy to set my thing up. So if any filmmakers are pondering it, you know, you, within uh, a very short amount of time, you can be up and running. And I would recommend everybody, you know, pay the five bucks or the the fifty bucks for a year or whatever it is. Watch watch all these movies. I'm I'm on the Frank V. Ross stuff now. I've watched like three of those. I've been enjoying myself there. Cool. Um, those are films I never would have found otherwise, which is great. I love I love when I come across stuff like that. And uh, yeah, Joe Swamberg, great talking to you, man. Yeah, you too. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. And. Um... Yeah, I uh, I just love that there is still a thriving um, community of independent filmmakers. I think it, it keeps getting stronger and um, the tools available to us keep advancing in ways that are um, so far, you know, pretty awesome. I mean, they just allow people like you and I to know each other, which is already great. We live in different cities. We've never met in real life. And yet we can share work and talk about the uh struggles you know so i love it absolutely all right take care man all right you too talk to you later thank you all for listening and like i said before if you like the show killthelionfilms.com two dollars per month that's all it takes you support the show you support the studio as well you help us make movies thank you all for listening see you soon